Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's a holiday weekend, so we have a clips show for you. It features my 2020 conversation with artist Renee Stout. Over the last year or two, sometimes it has felt like Stout is in every contemporary group show in American museums. First, there is the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University's Spirit in the Land, an exhibition that considers today's ecological concerns and demonstrates how our identities and natural environments are intertwined. The show particularly focuses on the relationship between the mainland United States and the Caribbean. Curated by Trevor Schoonmaker, it'll be on view through July 9th. Stout is also in the Los Angeles County Museum of Art version of Afro-Atlantic Histories. LACMA's presentation is a mostly contemporary version of an exhibition that originated in Brazil in 2018 before traveling to the Museum of Fine Arts Houston and the National Gallery of Art in Washington. Afro-Atlantic Histories is at LACMA through September 10th. You may also remember Stout's work from a couple group shows over the last couple years, including The Dirty South, Contemporary Art, Material Culture, and the Sonic Impulse, which was organized by the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, and Supernatural America, the Paranormal in American Art, which was put together by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. An exhibition of Stout's recent work, Renee Stout Navigating the Abyss, closed at New York's Mark Strauss Gallery last month. This conversation was taped on the occasion of Stout's inclusion in Person of Interest at the Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska in 2020. Renee Stout, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston is proud to announce the opening of the new galleries for Art of the Islamic Worlds. The galleries display the entire MFAH collection of Islamic art, enhanced by the Hussein Afshar collection, an exquisite selection of Persian masterworks. See historic paintings, ceramics, precious metalware, finely woven silk fabrics, and carpets. Learn more at mfah.org slash islamicworlds. On view through July 16th, 2023, at the Getty Center, the bold new exhibition Barbara T. Smith, The Way to Be, explores concepts that strike at the core of human nature, including sexuality, technology, and death. Since the 1960s, Smith has been at the forefront of artistic movements in California. Her work has taken various forms, including painting, drawing, installation, video, performance, and artist's books, and often involves her own body as a vehicle for her art. This autobiographical exhibition is Smith's first major museum show and explores the artist's first 50 years, which were marked by dramatic upheavals in her personal life, as well as the development of her most pioneering works, including her Xerox art and radical early performances. Getty also published Smith's memoir to accompany the show, and the exhibition includes an audio tour narrated by the artist. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Starting on April 6th, the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago presents Frictions, a suite of performances from Will Rawls, Shamel Pitts, and Barack Ade Soleil that focuses on the frictions that exist in a society shaped by race and the transformative power of productive resistance. Defying conventional notions of blackness, queerness, movement, dance, and performance, Frictions invites both audiences and performers to engage with the productive tensions that emerge through each work. Plan your visit to see one or all parts of Frictions at mcachicago.org backslash frictions. Conceptual artist Celia Alvarez-Munoz implements a playful, witty style often characterized by her use of bilingual puns and mistranslations in both text and image. Now through August 2023, 
explore Munoz's first career retrospective at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. Spanning 40 years and featuring over 35 artworks, visitors will experience large-scale immersive installations, photographic series, and book projects that draw inspiration from Munoz's lived experience as a resident of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego by going to mcasd.org. And we're back. Renee Stout, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler. Thank you for having me. Your work is rich with investigations into extensions of riffs on spirituality and how it has been practiced by people in diaspora and especially in forced diaspora. What about spirituality and its relationship to migrations first caught your attention? You know, it's a really complex question. And at first, I didn't realize why I was really, uh, you know, on how many levels I was attracted to the idea of African-based spirituality. And now that I'm a more mature artist and I can really, in hindsight, you know, explain uh, better, much better, you know, the reasons why I do the kind of work that I do and the things that inspire me, I realize, especially now, that my work has always been a form of reclamation in that as an African-American woman, I wanted to know what that meant. And so I look at the 60s and I see how during the civil rights movement, you know, we we decided that we needed to reclaim that part of ourselves that had been rejected by society, our hair, we embraced our skin color, we embraced a whole lot of things, but the one thing that seemed to remain taboo was the religion. There was still this adherence to Christianity and the fear that if you even questioned that, you know, you were going to go to hell. And so there was that fear of in, in looking in that area. And because I was never forced to go to church when I was growing up, I don't feel like I had the fear of questioning Christianity. And so when I first encountered certain objects in the Carnegie, Carnegie Museum when I was growing up as a child and later found out that they were ritualistic objects and that they had spiritual connections, and I started really looking into that. And that's when my work really started to change and became very spiritual where I investigated the spiritual more and sort of internalized those sort of spiritual beliefs. And so I feel that over time, that my work has become the resistance to the things that we faced as African-Americans during our whole history in this country. My investigations have always been a kind of resistance. So as you got interested in spiritual objects or objects that had relationships with with spirituality as a young person in in Pittsburgh, and then um, as as you moved away and had access to other material, what about the spirituality and its relationship to those objects interested you? Did you study or research faith traditions or, or faith practices, or was your interest more oriented around the objects, uh, the physical objects themselves? When I was first starting out, it was more, I was more focused on the aesthetics of the object. I liked the, you know, I was trained as a painter and I was more focused on painting. And then at some point I discovered Simultaneously, it seemed, I started really looking at African art, the art of Betty Saar, and the art of Joseph Cornell. And all three of those way of working is, is using found material, assembled materials. And so aesthetically, at first, I was intrigued with them. But 
that spiritual aspect, the fact that I knew that they were coming from a spiritual context, it made me start to do the research. And the more I researched, the, the more I became interested. And so it started off just what they look like, and then later on, the whole philosophy behind them started to become even more important. I mentioned that your work often examines how spirituality persisted as people migrated or were migrated from Africa to North America or Africa into the Caribbean. How do you see those migrations in the material that has interested you? And then how do you try to present those migrations in your work? You know, it's like the way my work developed, you were saying how my work didn't directly riff off of the original things that I had seen in the museum, but it did. When I first left Pittsburgh and came to D.C., I was still kind of painting, but at the same time, I had started to venture off into assemblage. And when I discovered the Museum of, of African Art here in D.C., that's when I saw the extensive collection. You know, Pittsburgh had a few of these, these ritualistic objects, but when I got to the Museum of African Art, it was like, oh, my God, there's this whole wealth of history on these things. And so I started looking more at these objects and really deciding that I was seeing all these connections. I had gone to New Orleans, you know, the whole idea of voodoo and hoodoo in New Orleans and how all these things tied back to some of these things I'd been seeing in the museum. I started making all these connections. But it's so complex that there's no way I can even explain the way things unfolded. I think eventually I realized that I didn't want to just pay homage to these objects in my own work by making something that was derivative. It's almost like I internalized the whole way of thinking. And then the work began to just, you know, I began to create installations that might be my fictitious root workers environment, what you might find in it. So I started creating what I feel like was a whole parallel universe based on this spirituality that I had only bits and pieces of because it's just so complex. I'm not Wyatt McGaffey who has done you know, extensive research in these areas and other people. As the artist, you know, I'm just looking and interpreting and being inspired by these, these things and just filtering it through my own understanding. A good example of that might be the Root Workers Table from, from 2011 which is a sculpture that puts together a lot of things you do, both a reference to found objects, but also trompe l'oeil and kind of enjoying the futzing or interstitial space between the two. Maybe give us some grounding in, in the hoodoo or magical spirituality that has interested you in your work by telling us who or what a root worker was and how you chose to present a root worker's space. You know, when I was growing up in Pittsburgh, there was this woman, I had a boyfriend that lived in Pittsburgh's Hill District, and that's, that was the neighborhood that the playwright August Wilson grew up in. And you know how rich his work is, so you know it had to be like a really interesting neighborhood. And there was a woman who I used to pass when I was going to his house. Her name was Madam Ching, and it was a black woman. And so the idea that she was called Madam Ching was kind of strange because that sounds, you know, a little Asian. But she had it painted in her front window, and I never knew why that was in her window. But she just sat there because she was very old at the time, just sat on the stoop watching people walk up and down the street. And eventually, 
I learned that she was most likely a reader or, you know, sort of a fortune teller, a woman who worked roots, provided remedies for the neighborhood. But people were fearful of her because as time passes and people don't have those kinds of connections to people like that in the neighborhood anymore and, you know, generations move away from that, there's kind of a fearfulness of looking back at that kind of thing, whereas at some point in time she probably served her community in a different kind of way. And so that was my first exposure to someone that was a root worker. And the more I was doing my research into African art and African ritualistic objects, you know, I started to make the connections between some of the things that were going on in New Orleans, some of the the ideas of using roots to affect change, you know, as talismans to affect change, herbs as remedies. So, you know, some of these things have purposes to help people with their health and that kind of thing. So the idea that there were these people who were sort of operating under the radar became really interesting to me. And I decided that I wanted to create from like an alter ego, that I would become this personality and just act it out in every way so that I had to create these environments for this person to move through, as well as the objects that she would use in helping her community. So in, in a sense, I had created this whole parallel universe or a play or a movie or a story that was an ongoing thing in my head. And that's what several bodies of work over the years came out of that acting through that, you know, that personality or that alter ego. You've created a bunch of alter egos. Uh, Fatima Mayfield, for example, uh, you mentioned Madame Ching. And, 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 and so then you kind of act as a medium between that personality and, and the object that ends up in a gallery in a not totally dissimilar way. The way you often present magical objects in your work, say roots or herbs, as you were mentioning a moment ago, is is also kind of mediated in a particular way. Maybe maybe the way, maybe one way of getting to that might be my asking: uh, Do you use roots and herbs in the work in in bottles and such, or is oh sure, oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> and 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 then and then sometimes, how do you when you're not using roots and herbs but are presenting roots and herbs in the work? How are you doing that? Like for example, you you brought up root workers' work table, and in that that piece. When I look at that piece now, if you've seen in some museums, these African objects that are, that are called minkisi, that's the plural word, or the singular one is an inkisi. And it's a carved figure and it has nails driven in it. Have you ever seen those? Oh yeah. 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 Well, in some interesting way, I feel that the root workers work table has become a kind of inkisi where I'm adding all of these things, it becomes the ritual object or the ritual space where the root worker transforms people's realities to make them feel better or to help them work out any adverse conditions they may be experiencing. And so what I've done in that, in that root worker's work table is to give you a glimpse into the way the root worker thinks by creating what's a fake, it's a fake blackboard. It looks like a blackboard, but it's actually a painting. She's making notations on it. She's citing specific roots that she is going to use. And on the table itself, there are actually examples of some roots and there are herbs in some of those jars. So that's how I'm actually using these things. 
But you sometimes make trompe l'oeil roots and herbs too, right? Like I know that for one exhibition, I actually had, I, was, I did a glass residency at the Museum of Glass in Tacoma, Washington. And I had them blow glass in the form of roots for me. But they were large. They were outside. But then I've occasionally, when you say trompe l'oeil, because I was trained as a painter, when I do painting sometimes, you know, I will paint like, for example, I've done like where I paint a piece of tape. And, you know, when the museum is unwrapping a painting, they think that a piece of blue tape got stuck on there. And they look at it and they think they have to pull it off and they realize it was painted on there. That's another way I use trompe l'oeil. So there are these in-betweens in your work, such as the painting that looks like a blackboard in The Root Worker's Table and the way you create these alter egos, seems not quite the right word, but, you know, Madam Cheng or, or Fatima Mayfield. And, you know, you kind of create these middle spaces between you and, and the work or the viewer and the work. Do you intend those as a metaphor or an analogy for the migration of African religions into North America or the Caribbean, or even as a metaphor for, say, the Middle Passage? Yeah, I think those alter egos are a metaphor for transition. Yeah. And I never feel, as an African-American woman, I never feel settled or at home or, you know, it's because the struggle for generations up until now, even, it's that sense that you're, there's not a sense of belonging. You're always constantly in transition. And I do feel like that space that you're talking about is the space that I feel like I'm constantly in and that I'm operating from. And it's like I, I have these par- this parallel universe. And that's my metaphor for feeling like I'm in this, but I'm not of it. And I think it's even more important now with what's going on politically for me to have that sort of alternative space or that parallel universe as a sort of metaphorical escape from this reality, I create my own reality, where these authorities are not my authorities. You mentioned Betty Saar a moment ago, and nothing, nothing could delight me more than, than getting the opportunity to talk about Betty a bit. How and when did you find Saar's work, and did your interest in hoodoo and magical spirituality precede having discovered Saar's work? Madam Ching was something that I saw before I encountered Betty Sarr's work. So, you know, wanting to understand what I was looking at came before seeing Betty's work. But I think what happened with seeing Betty's work was, okay, you figure I graduated from Carnegie Mellon in 1980. And I hung around Pittsburgh until 1985. But in 1984, you know, I had cousins who lived in Sacramento and L.A., And every summer, I would go to visit my cousins and stay all summer long and come back home. Well, the summer of 84, the Olympics were in Los Angeles. And at that time, I saw in the L.A. Times that there was going to be a show of Betty Sarr's work at the L.A. County Museum. And so I got this friend to drive me there through all that traffic and everything just to see Betty Sarr's show because I'd never heard of her before. And I was fascinated when I read that article. And when I got to the the museum, and it wasn't in the main building, there was a, a strange little brick building in back of the museum. And that's where they had Betty's work. And I was just fascinated. And it was a, how do you say, when something is just like changes your whole way of thinking right then and there. And 
that same summer before, well, it was like in the spring before I went there, I discovered the work of Joseph Cornell, and I found a book in a dusty old bookstore, in, you know, used bookstore in, in Pittsburgh. And when I got the little catalog on Betty's work that came with the show, I think there was a mention of Betty Sarr having seen Joseph Cornell's work as well when she was younger. So it all made sense, you know, this, this whole way of using found objects. But what was different about Betty is it was the first time I had seen a show by an African-American woman in a museum. And so her whole aesthetic and to see her use black people in her work and, and this, this hoodoo aesthetic that I had already begun to be familiar with, it just, to me, was a catalyst for it or, or something that gave me the go-ahead to explore the things that I want to explore. There are a number of things in your work that are also in, in Betty Sarr's work things that recur over and over again. And, and I want to ask about a couple of them. One of them is your use of windows, such as in your 2013 House of, and here's where I'm going to mess up pronunciation, House of Gade, Gade? House of Gede. House of Gede. Did you take particular note of how Betty Sarr used windows and was that instructive to you? You know, I remember one of the main things that I saw of hers was called Black Girl's Window. Famous. Yes. And I think... I'm not sure whether it's a subconscious thing or the idea that, to me, windows and doors become portals into another universe. And so that's why it's a recurring theme in my work. You know, I have several pieces that I've done where there's a window. And it's, it's like even with House of Gede, you know, to me, I want, what I'm aiming is for the viewer to say, okay, here's this window. What's beyond that? You know, try to imagine the world that's beyond that window. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned doors because, of course, um, as as Betty Sarr talked about on, on this show three or four years ago, at quite literally the same moment she was making Black Girl's Window, David Hammonds, who was also living in L.A. at the time and they didn't know each other yet, was, was using doors to access similar metaphors, including in his great piece now at the California African American Museum. We'll have a link to that conversation with Sarr on, on this week's show page. Another element that pops up in Sar's work a lot is hearts. And I don't mean the shape, I mean the anatomical thing. Did you take particular note of Sar's hearts or did you come to using hearts some other way? I came to using hearts in a different way. I feel that hearts are a universal thing. I think if you go anywhere in the world, you're going to find an artist who uses hearts as a metaphor or a symbol of something. And it's such a human thing. And for me, from my point of view, it's the heart that's the blood is there. It's the driving force behind the body. We talk about you feel it in your heart or when you're in love, it's about, you know, oh, it, it's your heart. You know, I think the heart is so loaded as an image and, and has so much meaning to it that it becomes sort of this iconic symbol, you know, to basically to humanity. And so I think that that's why it's a recurring thing. I think it's recognizable anywhere. There's a work of yours in the Sheldon's collection and indeed a 2015 sculpture called Legba and the Pearl Gourd. Is there a relationship between the Legba you reference in your work and Papa Legba, who is a spirit that, I'm going to butcher this, but a spirit who serves as a kind of intermediary between the spirit world and humanity? Yeah, it's the same thing. And it's Ishu Allegbara. 
and various parts of the diaspora. It's called, you know, it's called different things. And I usually use legba because that's the way it's referred to in, in Haitian voodoo. And I just like the little, you know, the short, shortened version of it. So a lot of things I, I re- refer to this spirit as legba. But legba is the deity of the crossroads. And I'm always dealing with the, the concept of the crossroads and the, or the idea of being at a crossroads because, like I said, I feel like I'm always in transition. And I've been dealing with the crossroads a lot lately because I feel like the entire country and the world is at a crossroads. So that's a recurring theme in my recent work, but it's always been a theme of my work. And so the work that you're referring to at the Sheldon is about that deity of the crossroads, which is also a trickster. Let me let me back up and fill in a bit of info. In, in West African traditions, Legba is, as you mentioned, a trickster deity, often horned figure, and often kind of in between the village and rural lands. So again, an, an interstitial figure. Uh, so sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to fill. That's in. right. Yeah. So and I deal with that a lot because in some cultures that have the idea or the, the you know the concept of you know the spirit Legba or Legba. There is no such thing as the devil. And the reason why is because basically you're your own devil. And what happens is a legba will present you a choice. You, you're at a crossroads. You have a choice to make. And a lot of times people, you know, they know they have a choice to make. Sometimes they make a choice knowing full well it's not the thing they're supposed to be doing. So then they suffer the consequences of that. And they may go through hell over their choice that they make. Well, that, that you're your own devil in that case. You know that you made the wrong decision. Now you have to suffer the consequences. Maybe the next time you'll know better. So that's the way Legba functions. How did you discover Legba and what made Legba a, a spirit or tradition that you wanted to reference or include in your work? Well, I definitely discovered Legba as well as other deities and spirits through my, my reading. But I think the idea that, that it became the perfect metaphor for what I felt like I was experiencing as far as always being at a crossroads, always having to make decisions to navigate through the situations that I find myself in as a woman, a single woman who's you know, working hard to be an artist and maintain myself and, you know, all this other kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's like, it's a interesting to have to navigate this and, you know, that being at a crossroads is always coming up. So that's why it, it's a recurring theme in my work. And Legba is, a, you'll see that figure in a lot of my works through several bodies of work. So in both the work on paper and the sculpture, extending from the mound, which the viewer might well read as a head. There is there is a horn type form extending up from the mound. It's actually a branch. It's a branch, right? But I, in my way of thinking of it, it was referencing the horn of the of the trickster figure, which it made. Yeah, exactly. You can see it that way, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there is hanging from that branch a, a cross, not exactly more like a plus symbol than a Christian cross, and a key hanging from it. And then, and then those, those, they're both reflected in the work on paper. What does the, the plus sign or the cross and the, and the key symbolize? Whenever you see that sort of plus sign-like cross in my work, that is directly re- referencing the crossroads, being at the crossroads. And so since I have that leg figure there, hanging from that branch would be like a representation of what, you know, the crossroads, being at that place, whether it's an intersection where two roads meet and you have to take a direction. What direction are you going to take, you know? So that's what that represents. The key to me in my work becomes a symbol of opening doors or stepping in to the next phase 
or the key to some information that I'll need. That's interesting to hear about the cross, because there are a number of places across your oeuvre where it seems like sometimes you tippy-toe up to referencing Christian traditions, whether relics and reliquaries or the form of the cross, and the, but, but your work never gets there. It never, you know, it stops before the association becomes direct or, or, or possibly even a vague quotation. Are you aware and mindful of that or... Yeah, I am mindful of that sometimes. I think sometimes it's subconscious and sometimes I'm very mindful of it. And I feel that it might be about, okay, when I was growing up, even though I wasn't forced to go to church by my parents who did not want to go to church, they were forced to go to church. And that's the reason why they didn't force me and my sister to go. But I, we did voluntarily go sometimes with my one grandmother who was Catholic and the other one who was Baptist, which were two very different experiences. But, you know, going to the church was an interesting experience that, you know, is in me as well. And being raised in a culture that has decided that it's a Christian culture. Of course, I'm never going to escape that. This is, you know, this is what you see in American culture. You see churches everywhere. So, of course, there's always going to be a reference to that if I'm dealing with spirituality. That creeps in. But at the same time, I'm basically trying to say that no matter what religion people have, there is a, hopefully there's this quest to be spiritual beings. But I think what happens is that people get stuck in the religion instead of moving beyond the religion and saying, look, all of us are trying to get to a more spiritual place where we acknowledge that there's a higher power. But why do we have to fight it out about how that, that power looks? And so I think that, yeah, many, many spiritual symbols from all kinds of cultures creep into my work, you know, as well as from Christianity. So speaking of kind of being aware of Christian traditions and Christian forms or forms used in art about Christianity, but not jumping into a direct address of them, I'd like to ask about a work called Erzuli's Arsenal from from 2013. First, who is Erzuli? Erzuli... Basically, in West Africa, when the captives were taken through parts of the diaspora, the goddess Oshun, who is the goddess of love, beauty, and wealth, was transformed in Haiti to Ursuli. But the reason why it became Ursuli is because when the French inhabited and you know they were the, the captives were trying to have their religion but not let the, the, you know, their French captors know that. So what they did is they took forms of Christianity and hid their own deities behind saints. Mary became the sort of front woman for Ursley, and Ursley is a form of Oshun, and it, she is the deity in Haiti of love, beauty, and wealth. And so I like that the idea of this goddess or deity of love, beauty, and wealth and so, of course, I would make you know a little shrine to her. And Ursley's arsenal has all kinds of little secrets in the bottles. If you open the little drawer, there's a little heart inside, which is her symbol. Yep, and and this is actually the shape of a heart this time. Not that's the... actually the shape of <laughs> yeah. a heart, right? Right. Uh huh. So the question I wanted to ask about this piece in the context of Christian forms is that this piece seems to reference the form of an altar right down to the traditional altar form, right down to the way there are wings literally on hinges on either 
on either sides of your sculpture, right down to the, the stuff in the little bottles you reference could even stand in like for... Like reliquaries or something. Exactly. Yeah. And it strikes me as a piece in which you get about as close to Christianity as you ever get. So why were you willing to do that here? Because I like the idea of mixing those kinds of cultural references. So having spent, having spent the previous, you know, literally 25 years substantially addressing West African spirituality come West, you had gotten to the point where you were willing to, you know, bring a third culture in or fourth. Oh, yeah. And more than that, I think, you know, like in my library, which is all over the house, books in every room, there are books on religions from all over the world and, you know, dictionary of world religions and all kinds of things like that, that I, you know, that I look through sometimes and read. And, you know, you mentioned that I'm very interested in West African religion, but also Central Africa, the, the, you know, the Minkisi come from the Congo. And so that's primarily my interest. But at the same time, I'm interested in the idea of mixing, mixing religions. Because when you look at our world right now, the worst thing people think you could do is mix religions. You know, it's like, oh, no, mine is better. Mine is better. And it's so segregated in that way. And then so what I'm basically doing is metaphorically bringing it all together in, in, in a way of saying we can all play nice in this room. So in 1998, you made a work called Fetish Number no. 2. Oh, it was 19. Uh, that was 1988. 88. I'm sorry. Um, a work called Fetish Number no. 2. It's a work kind of early in your transition away from a kind of a social realist painting tradition into the kind of spirituality addressing work we're talking about now. And it includes some elements we've discussed, such as the use of, or at least a reference to, a window. Maybe using that work as a way in, how is that work itself a kind of symbol? And what were some of the symbols that you, that you layered that work with? That's interesting because you had asked me before when you, you had said that I didn't riff directly off of the, the African work. That was a case of early on I did. That's the perfect example to use because that particular piece was directly inspired by seeing these Minkisi figures, these nail figures in both the Carnegie Museum and the Museum of African Art here in Washington, D.C. And in that piece, because I was so hate to keep using the word inspired, but it's just like so obsessed almost with what these Minkisi represented, the idea that they were vessels of power because in the cultures that they were created in, it was believed that if you created these figures that, yeah, and you put them, you know, placed them in the hands of the, you know, the, the priest in the village, the, the Nganga or, you know, the spiritual leader that whenever you had a problem, somebody in, in the village or the town had a problem, they could go to this spiritual guide, and through these objects, they could communicate with the ancestors to seek their guidance. And that's what these pieces were all about. You know, they were vessels for the ancestor spirits to inhabit. So when I realized that, it's, it made me want to create my own Nkisi from my own body. And in a sense, I was trying to say, okay, ancestors, come and inhabit this and guide me. So we've talked about religion and spirituality in your work, but we haven't really touched on magic. And I don't know if it's because I'm thinking of the Betty Sarr influence or not, but is the line between spirituality and magic something that interests you? 
Yeah, I think because in, in, in the way that I'm dealing with those things, they become the same thing. You know, the, the spiritual realm, things can happen that are magical. And so I, I, I don't make a separation between those things. Finally, you've talked in interviews over the years quite a bit about how hoodoo traditions in whatever cultural or regional tradition or, or place are, are typically quiet, kept on the down low in a certain way. They are not discussed or promoted publicly. Why has that element of hoodoo traditions interested you, and how have you addressed surfacing hoodoo traditions within your work? You, well, we know why they pretty much have been like on the down low or um, kept secret, because people who openly believed in a so-called Christian culture would be ostracized. So, like, for example, there was a store that I used to go to to get some of my roots called Cloverhorn that has since closed. But, you know, when I first came to D.C., you know, I found that store and I would go there and get this high John the Conqueror root and all the, you know, the famous roots. And what I noticed, and it was in a black community, there would be people who would come in and they would whisper to the woman behind the counter what they wanted. And I recognized what I was seeing because... You know, as far as these people not wanting to say things too loud, because a lot of these people who came in that store would never want their fellow churchgoers to know that they were even going into a store like that, you know, because they would feel like, you know, they're betraying their Christian culture and their Christian traditions or whatever to do so. To me, looking at that, I felt like, well, why do these traditions have to be kept quiet, you know, as if they're bad? And so in my work, I actively sought to, you know, expose them. And I think because I did that, a lot of people, especially in the African-American community, were very suspect of my work and acted like they were afraid of it, you know, because these were taboo things that people didn't want to talk about out in the open or they wanted to forget that it existed. Is there a, is there a work of yours where that you think is a particularly good example of how you're not just addressing hoodoo traditions, but doing it in a way that references their usual quietude? No, I, I think mine is just so out in the open. The things that I address is just so out in the open that you know, I don't see a reason to address the, the, the quietude. I, I, I want it out in the open. I was thinking maybe sometimes the way you use windows where, where the window isn't totally translucent or the way you use drawers in the work, maybe. Yeah, but that, that does represent that the thing that I'm showing out in the open, there are still secrets. You know, when you see, a, a, you know, like House of Gede, there are some things that are presented to you, yet there are this, you know, opaque window that you really can't see into, but the implication is that there's more. Renee Stout, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.